ICP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you can be here. And if you are a first time listener, uh, what we will do for the next hour is take people's questions. And so if you have a specific question that as you've been studying God's word that you would like us to address, uh, we will do our best. Uh, Again, the number locally is 843-525-1859, or you can uh, text us directly here into the studio and you can do that at TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. If you do call, we do give live callers preference. Uh, some people don't like to go on the air live, uh, but they just simply want to dictate their question. And we're happy to receive it that way as well. A number of questions have come in, Rick. And um, let's go ahead and we'll jump in with both feet. And by God's grace, we'll try to respond. All right. Very good. Uh, First, we want to apologize to the caller that uh, got cut off last week when we were running out of time for their question. So uh, they might want to call again this uh, morning if they got the opportunity. Meanwhile, a dictated question left over from last week. A caller who said uh, she was at a Baptist church in Orlando recently And the service seemed very theatrical and not like a traditional church service. Is this trend becoming more prevalent as churches are becoming more inclined to be seeker-friendly? I'm afraid so. In fact, I would say it's a repeated frustration of uh, Christians that leave this church, Community Bible Church, where I pastor, and they go to other parts of the United States, and they discover that my, uh, what's going on? Uh, this is really different. It seems like a, a rock concert and uh, a lot of skits, uh, a lot of uh, laughter. Not that there's anything unspiritual about laughing, but but very little teaching of the Word of God. And that's uh, that's the sad state of the church. And it's actually a philosophy of how to do church that I would say Bill Hybels and Rick Warren both put out there in front of the body of Christ about 30 years ago. And in my opinion, it's been devastating to evangelicalism. It's created uh, a, a new generation of people who, for the most part, are biblically ignorant. They really do not know what the scripture teaches because the philosophy is that on Sunday morning, it should be, quote unquote, seeker sensitive that we cater the service, not for the saved, but for the lost. And the thought is, is that we need to win them to Christ. And that's the best way to do it. Look, I I appreciate the goal. I want to win people to Christ. People who know me know that uh, my heart is to do everything that we can as a body of believers to reach people with the gospel of Christ. But you never compromise God's standards of how to do church. And God's standards are very, very clearly expressed in the pastoral epistles. So what Bill Hybels and Rick Warren has done really is antithetical to the word of God. And yet tens of thousands of churches in America have adopted it. 
And in some instances, it's created huge churches. And people will say, well, look, you can't argue with the numbers. But I would say as a general rule, when people come from seeker-sensitive churches, two out of four, maybe three out of four, don't even know what the plan of salvation is. I'm serious. I mean, some from High Bulls and Warren's church that have moved here to Beaufort County and, oh yeah, I've been a member of Bill Hybels church. And you ask them the diagnostic questions and they don't even know the plan of salvation. And of course, um, in the course of time, you know, like you take a Bill Hybels and he is uh, stepping down uh, into a different role. Uh, the woman that he has selected to be his pastor is a woman. Uh, so a woman is taking his place as a senior pastor. They have, uh, I don't forgot, 10 or 12 elders and uh, 70% of them are women. So they're in violation of scripture. They've diminished the role that God has given to women and they've emasculated the role that God's given to men. And so again, when people are ignorant of the scripture, it sounds good, you know, let's do it. Um, but look, if I were the devil and I wanted to destroy the evangelical church in America, the last great stronghold of the gospel in the world today, I would weaken the evangelical church in the way he has done it, I think is through a new methodology where the scriptures are not paramount in the worship service on Sunday morning. So, you know, you can't take three or four verses and uh, just be creative with them and preach for 15 minutes and really change lives. You're going to see phony conversions. And we've seen this in South Carolina. You know, we saw the, um, uh, you know, the new spring movement that Perry Noble, you know, created and it, and he had, you know, 25,000 people in church. And of course, every time I would hear him, I would cringe. And I think there's so much error here. It's pathetic. And now, of course, you know, he's, um, you know, he's divorced. He and his wife are divorced and he's been on alcohol and all kinds of problems, you know, um, but that's, uh, but people love it. That's what they want. But you don't give them what they want. You give them what they need. That's what a man of God is supposed to do. Anyway. You don't feed somebody junk food and keep them healthy. That's exactly right, Rick. All right. We've got a live caller, I think. We're going to give it a shot here, see if anybody's on the line. Uh, Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, And Sunday's message, you talked about how there is time in heaven and truthfully, I'd never really thought about that before, but I saw it in your biblical references how it's true, of course, but I was wondering how that pertains like to God the Father as, uh, you know, we know he's omnipresent, so would that be like there's time for us in heaven, being as we're finite beings, but not for the Father because he's infinite and uh, just wondered about that, if it pertains differently to God than it would to us, of course. Well, it's a good question. Obviously, God has no beginning or end. God's eternal. Uh, He alone has eternality. Now, we are created as finite beings, but once we are created, we are created to live forever and ever. But God alone possesses eternality, where he has no beginning or end. And so, obviously, God sees things from a different perspective than we do as finite people. But the the point I was trying to make uh, on Sunday is that, you know, there's a popular hymn, when the trump of God shall sound, that time will be no more. And it's really a, a misunderstanding of an old translation that was done in the King James 
uh, where even the New King James doesn't render it that way. It's not a manuscript issue or anything like that. It's just a translation issue, which uh, for the careful reader, they would see, no, there is time in heaven. And even the verse that follows that in Revelation 10 indicates there's time. Uh, There's no more time to withhold the judgment. It's going to unfold, but there is time in heaven, obviously. How long, O Lord, will you keep, you know, your judgment upon these people away, your judgment away from these people and on and on. I gave numerous examples. So God is one thing. We're another thing. Time's a reality in heaven and uh, you will experience uh, real time in heaven. There is time there. Uh, that doesn't change the nature of God. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Very good. Uh, 525-843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line. And John from Nashua, New Hampshire writes, which English Bible translation have you found to be the most accurate to the meaning of the original Hebrew Aramaic in the Old Testament and Greek uh, in the New Testament scriptures? Is there one or do I need multiple? Well, it's a fair question, and again, there's always a challenge in terms of translation when you work from one language into a receptor language. That's true today. It was true when the manuscripts that uh, we have were translated into various tongues around the world. Uh, We have a unique challenge with the English language in that there's actually over 250 different English translations. Most of us know about 10 to 15 of them, uh, but there's been just scores of English translations. And that's a unique challenge because in many parts of the world, there's only one translation of the Bible that they have. And sometimes the translation is a few hundred years old. Um, In the Slavic languages, they use one Russian translation until more recently, uh, they have what people often um, affectionately call the Pope's Bible because the Roman Catholic Church created a, a more modern translation of the Russian text. Uh, but in English, uh, I, there are various translation philosophies. And so in the truest sense, there are no English literal translations unless you have a um interlinear Bible, an interlinear Bible, if you've seen one, is it has the Greek text and right below it, the English text. And with an interlinear Bible, uh, it wouldn't always make uh, sense in terms of uh, how languages are structured. Uh, like, for instance, I have before me John five forty two. And uh, Jesus um, says literally uh, from the Greek text, I've come in the name of my father and you me did not receive. If another should come in another name of his own, him you will receive. So that's a little wooden, but that's basically how the Greek New Testament reads that verse. Um, so what you try to do in, in, and it can get far more challenging than that because sometimes the very first word in the Greek new Testament is a verb. And we don't usually structure our sentences like that in English. We go subject, verb, object, but sometimes the very first word can be a verb. And so, um, what a translation team does is it takes the original language and tries to put it as accurately as possible into the receptor language. Now, there are some translations that really aren't translations, 
uh, or versions, they're, they're um, paraphrases. And so a very popular paraphrase translation that was done initially beginning in the 1960s, it was completed in the 70s, was called the Living Bible. Uh, they've updated it in more recent years. Uh, the Good News Version uh, was another popular translation. The guy who did that translation, I remember he came and lectured at Duke University where I was a campus pastor and he didn't even believe in the bodily resurrection. So it made you wonder, you know, how faithful he would be to the, uh, the scriptures. But the good news for modern men, it was called, was the translation he wrote. That was done by one person. Usually we distinguish technically between a translation and a version. So we speak of the King James version, not the King James translation or the new American standard version or the new international version. A version by nature and by definition is not done by one person, but a team of persons. Sometimes the team could be as small as 50. Sometimes the team might be as high as 250 where groups of people who uh, are well trained in the original languages uh, will take uh, the original and then translate it. So there's always a little bit of paraphrasing that goes on in every translation of the Bible. And some translations do more than others. Some will take a pronoun and they'll interpret the pronoun. Uh, For instance, um, I've got my Bible open here to Revelation 13. It says, so the dragon was enraged with the woman. Uh, The woman of Revelation chapter 13 is uh, Israel. And as we work through uh, the book of Revelation, we will work through uh, these very verses. And they're very, very important verses. Uh, Chapter 12 and chapter 13 are critical to understanding the book of of Revelation. Um, But it says here, so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, meaning the the Jewish people that he was warring against. And then it goes on and it says, uh, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's speaking specifically of Jews who are converted during the time of the great tribulation. And then 13, one opens and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Uh, if you read the New American Standard 1978 or 1975 edition, it says, and he stood on the sand of the seashore. Um, the New American Standard 1995 says, and the dragon. Well, it's actually a pronoun, he, but interpretively, uh, they say the dragon because that's the nearest antecedent. Uh, it is a challenge because of chapter and verse divisions. In fact, what the ESV does in that case is they actually make verse 12 of uh, verse 17 of chapter 12 longer and uh, 13 one shorter so that there's no confusion. So they do something that's a little more dramatic and that they veer from the original verse divisions that have traditionally been held. So again, when you're dealing with translations, there's degrees of literalness on one end of the spectrum. You have an interlinear Bible. On the other end, you have the living Bible, a total paraphrase in a paraphrase, usually done by one person, maybe with the counsel of a few others. If he got stuck, uh, you're basically getting a commentary on the Bible. You're not really getting a pure translation, but between those points, there's degrees of literalness. Uh, The NIV became a very popular um, 
English translation, and they had two goals. One was literalness, and the second was readability. By the way, the King James and the New American Standard had those same two goals, literalness and readability. The difference was is that the King James and the New American Standard put literalness first and readability second, where the NIV reversed it, and they put readability first and literalness second. And so what that typically means is they end up paraphrasing a little bit more. Uh, but it was helpful to a lot of people when the NIV came out in 1984, came out in a couple of parts, first the New Testament and then the Old Testament, and then they released the whole Bible. And then uh, in the uh, 1990s, uh, there was a kind of a controversy that took place and uh, they produced another translation called the TNIV, today's new international version. And what they were trying to do was to counter all you know, uh, politically correct, not counter, but to endorse a lot of what we would call politically correct language. And so, you know, people sometimes don't like to use pronouns he or she or whatever. And so they tried to create somewhat of a gender neutral Bible. And a lot of people were furious when that took place. And I signed a petition myself, along with a lot of Christian leaders across the country, and uh, it was brought by Dr. Dobson uh, to Zondervan, and they said, we won't do it. You're right. This is not right. And of course, um, everyone believed them. And yet, behind everyone's back, they went ahead anyway and produced the translation. And in shock, it came out three years later. Now, the new New International Version came out in paper in 2011. And so that is a blend between the old NIV and the TNIV. And so what they do sometimes is if there's a pronoun that says he, because they don't want it to sound too masculine, they change it to they. That's really altering what God says. And in many cases, as I demonstrate in my course on bibliology, you're changing the meaning of the text and sometimes the very personal nature of a promise that God is giving. So, you know, sometimes you'll hear me quote NIV and I'll say NIV 84. Um, in deference to the 2011. I don't want to endorse the 2011. With that said, neither do I want to disparage God's word and get people to begin to think, well, what Bible can we trust? But are there some Bibles that I think are more precise and more accurate? Yes. And I think, I think personally the best is the New American Standard. Now, a lot of um, younger men are now going with the ESV once the NIV came out in their blend with the TNIV in 2011 and they've switched to the ESV and the ESV is a good translation. Um, I don't think uh, it's as good as the new American standard and some people went to the NIV especially in the 1980s and left the new American standard uh, because they felt like it was a little bit wooden and by wooden I mean too literal and a little awkward and clumsy in their view in places and just didn't read as smoothly in the English language as they would have liked. And of course, um, that came, that translation came from the 1901 version called the American Standard Version. See, here's the challenge is God's word is the same. It never changes, but sometimes words change with time. In my King James Bible, it says, be careful for nothing. Well, look, if you're out driving around today and you're listening to this broadcast, be very careful. You know, don't run a red light and stop at a stop sign and be very careful. But the King James says, be careful for nothing. Well, today we'd say be anxious for nothing. 
or be worried for nothing. But neither the word anxious or worried even existed in the English language when the King James was done in the six, you know, in the 17th century. In fact, when people refer to the old King James, they're not even reading the 1611, they're reading the fifth revision, the 1738, of which there was nearly 100,000 changes that were done because the English language was changing so fast. So the old King James is the 1738 translation. Most people couldn't read the 1611. Then the new King James came out and made a few modifications with some words that, a few words that meant almost the opposite. So to have a modern literal translation is very, very helpful. And I, I personally like the New American Standard. And what I find interesting is that most people who are Bible expositors, and I know that's getting hard to find in our day. Our first callers said they went to a large church in Orlando and they don't find that. And it's a constant frustration that people tell me, they say that the pastor doesn't open and teach the Bible. And that's what we need. That's what's going to change lives. It's the power of God's word that brings real change and real lasting, permanent character development in a person's life. And, and so that's been jettisoned in our day. But pastors who are committed to expository teaching, I mean, just think even on WAGP, we had John MacArthur today. We had David Jeremiah today. Erwin uh, Lutzer, he's a Bible expositor. Um, uh, Tony Evans is a Bible expositor. What translation do they all use? New American Standard, not by accident, because it is so precise. I've been blessed of God to learn the original languages. I don't know Aramaic, and um, there's just a few chapters in all of the Old Testament and just a couple sentences in the New Testament that are in Aramaic. But for the most part, it's in Hebrew, 99.9% of the Old Testament in uh, the Greek New Testament would be 99.9999999%. Again, just a couple sentences. Um, so studying every week in the original languages in preparation for my sermon, I, j- I just appreciate the New American Standard and the incredible job they've done. Uh, so uh, again, but if I were to choose and I said two, I'd go with the ESV and the NASB. I think those are probably the two best, along with the New King James. Sometimes there's not a single English translation that can express the meaning of a word. And uh, because a word can have more than one nuance, it's like looking at a diamond and there's a lot of different cuts on the same diamond. And sometimes uh, if you're doing a word for word correspondence, it's difficult to find a single word. And, and one translation might bring out one side of the diamond and another translation, another side. It's the same thing, but it's helpful. So anyway, I hope that helps you. All right. That call was from Nashua, New Hampshire. And up the road a ways is uh, John in Manchester, New Hampshire, who writes, how do we deal with active homosexuals or, say, two people living together but are not married in the church? Uh, taking into consideration that Matthew eighteen fifteen to 17 seems to only deal with a brother-sister who's gone off the Christian path and deals with sin, I am confused as it uh, seems that if the church does not deal with the issue, I'm concerned that it will appear as being accepted behavior and possibly leading to graver issues in the church. I think it appears that our church is being too liberal. Thank you. I'd love to listen to you on WDER. Well, it's, it, it's a great question, and I know church discipline is kind of a thing of the past, uh, but it's not uh, in God's Word, and we practice it at Community Bible Church, and 
uh, unfortunately have to, uh, on occasion, bring something to the whole church. And uh, there is a process. Uh, Jesus gave it to us. Uh, Paul articulated it in 1 Corinthians 5 and uh, also gave some qualifications as the church grew. Uh, the scripture says, if your brother sins, and the word brother there is used in contextually, meaning a brother or sister. So again, you know, sometimes, uh, again, these newer translations say, well, if a person sins, okay, that's interpretive. That's all right. That's not really totally misrepresenting the verse because that's the understood nuance contextually. Um, so that's not what we're really talking about. Uh, when we uh, are speaking about gender type language, um, what we're talking about in the prior question is when they take a pronoun, uh, if he does not listen to you and they write, if they do not listen to you. Now they've made it plural, but it's singular and it's dealing with an individual. So that changes the meaning. If your brother sins, you go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And that's the first level of church discipline. Uh, and again, it's not just any kind of sin. When you study the New Testament and you let scripture interpret scripture, we all sin in many ways, but there are times when there's sin that brings reproach to the name of Christ. Paul talks about it, for instance, in first Corinthians five, someone who's living sexually immoral and that kind of sin demands accountability. And this of course assumes membership and that, People are committed to a fellowship of saints. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And so many times church discipline stops at the second level. I would say in the vast majority of cases where I as a pastor was involved in church discipline, it stopped right at this level, sometimes at the first level. The person listens to you. They, you break the bubble and they realize what they're doing and they make things right. Sometimes they don't listen and you come back with two or three and let everything be confirmed by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And, and that unanimity of thought and voice and testimony brings them to their senses. But sometimes even then they don't listen. And so if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There's an assumption that this person is in the church, that they uh, have committed a sin that demands the kind of uh, accountability where, you know, you bring it in front of the whole congregation. We typically do this on a Wednesday night if it comes to this. And then you say to the congregation, because it's usually more family and people who are committed to your fellowship and so-and-so has been living with a woman that he's not married to. We've gone through the process. He hasn't listened. And so now we're bringing it to you. And if he doesn't listen to you, that local assembly, then he's counted as an unbeliever. He's removed from the fellowship of the assembly. Now, uh, th there are some exceptions to this. Um, there's an assumption here that the person is in the fellowship. And if the person has abandoned the church and no longer comes, then there's no one to bring to the fellowship in terms of the third level. Will you bring them to the church? 
but you can still exercise church discipline where the person is formally dismissed and there's closure. Unfortunately, I have to do this tomorrow night in our Wednesday evening service. It's a painful thing to do, but your goal is restoration. That's your goal. You, you want the person to be restored. And so what happens when a person is officially disfellowshipped from the church, they are open to a level of spiritual attack that they would not otherwise know when the elders of a church, the leaders of the church, how, whatever your church polity may be. And Paul in Galatians six says, you who are spiritual, you're the ones who are to deal with those who are caught up in a trespass. And in most local denominations and churches, uh, they do that with the elders or deacons of the local assembly. But they had someone in first Corinthians five who was living sexually immoral in the Corinthians, though it was well known, they didn't do anything. The guy still came to church and everybody just kind of looked the other way. And Paul said, you should have done something. And so Paul does it in his spirit. And he says, you're discommunicated, disfellowshipped, excommunicated from the church. And he says, when that happens, then basically uh, those believers are giving Satan an opportunity to wreak havoc on the person's lives. And if the person's a believer, it's serious. If they're not a believer, at least the testimony of the church has been protected. Were you uh, as a denomination or as a local assembly are able to maintain your credibility? Now, specifically in reference, if you've got two men or two women that are lesbians who come to your church and they're not members, great, let them come. Hopefully they'll get saved. But if they're members of your church, then again, it's a form of sexual immorality. It's no different than some heterosexual who's living immoral or a homosexual living. It's sin is sin is sin. And that's the kind of sin uh, that demands a church discipline according to the New Testament. And so anybody should be welcome to your church. Not everyone should become a member of your church. And so I have people that sometimes come to my meet the pastor meeting and I know they're living together and sometimes they'll hear the gospel that night and they'll receive Christ as their savior. And I will say to them before they leave. Now, if you've really truly received Jesus as your Lord, then um, I assume you're going to break off this relationship. You cannot live immorally. We will not receive them into the membership and I will not baptize them as a pastor if I'm aware that they are living in some kind of sexual immoral relationship because I'm going to be looking for the genuine fruits of repentance. Anyway, I, I hope that helps this uh, question that came from Manchester, New Hampshire. It's a great question, and it's an important question. Let's go to the next caller. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Yeah, go ahead. You were breaking up there a little bit. Try it again. Okay, can you hear me now? Yes, loud and clear, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, uh, earlier on your show, you were speaking about uh, Bill Hybels and Rick Warren. Uh, I know you're familiar with uh, Ray Comfort and uh, Kirk Cameron's Way of the Master. I was reading a book uh, by Ray Comfort, uh, God Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life, The Myth of Modern Evangelism. And in there he talks about uh, using the law as people like um, Spurgeon and Moody did, as well as Luther, Moses, and even Jesus. Uh, he talks about the importance of using the law. Uh, about, I think later on he even said, 
talked about he, he and Kirk Cameron meeting with uh, Bill Bright and, you know, the four spiritual laws and how, you know, say that that's not the only method. method. In some of the books, he even mentioned the importance of using the law. And the point of the book was that you got so many pastors out there preaching this 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 uh, myth, and that you're, it's producing in the church a lot of uh, false comments. Uh, I was wondering what you thought about that, about the uh, method of using the law as these other pastors did, and and uh, uh, the, okay, you know, let me let me respond. It's a good question. Um, let me first speak in defense of Dr. Bill Bright. Uh, he's been in heaven now for, I don't know, going on 15 years, maybe longer. Uh, he led more people to Christ as an organization than any other single organization in the history of Christianity. So people can criticize Dr. Bill Bright, um, but the fact is, is that millions, millions and millions of people came to faith in Christ through the four spiritual laws. And the first law was God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And by the way, I'm one of those persons. So, um, you know, uh, what he was trying to do as a businessman, as he realized, you know, very often people don't know what to say or how to bridge a conversation. So he did basic training in terms of how do you bridge a conversation and bring someone into the plan of salvation where they can hear the gospel. And God used the four spiritual laws and God continues to use the four spiritual laws to bring people to faith in Christ around the world. It's the most translated evangelistic tract. It's in uh, 150 some languages around the world. Uh, with that said, uh, in my humble opinion, because I used to train people, uh, I did, if you went on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ from, let's see, from 19. 80 until about n almost the year 2000, then you had to go through Carl Brogy's course on how to share the four spiritual laws because your first two years on staff, you went through a two year process on um, learning basic uh, ministry skills. And one was how to share the plan of salvation. You had to watch a video that became a DVD and uh, that I did on how to make the four spiritual laws clear. I think what took place as years transpired is that you can't start with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. John 3, 16, that's law one. Um, there's no context anymore for people. People don't know uh, much of the Bible at this time in American history. So I think now we have to step back in a day that the society was more Christianized and people knew a lot more about Christianity. I meet young Marines now, 18, 19 years old. They don't know who Adam and Eve are. Uh, if I ask them, you know, God put him in a garden and he gave him these trees that he could choose from. And uh, one tree in particular, he forbade them to eat from. And did, do you know if they ate the fruit or not? And they'll say, no, I don't know. I mean, this, these are the kinds of responses that, um, I hear very, very often people have no background at all. So I think we have to step back. And so I wrote my own evangelistic track uh, that deals with, uh, I think, the bigger picture. Would you like to have God as your friend? Now, I, I know Kurt Cameron's approach, and I appreciate these guys because they're trying to share their, the gospel, and most people aren't anymore. That's the sad thing is, you know, they're not trying to share Christ. And so... 
They'll say, you know, have you ever told a lie? And, you know, have you ever had a lustful thought? Then you've broken this commandment and that commandment. And, and I, and I see some Christians think, well, this is like a little formula that if you ask these questions or say it in this way that you're using the law to bring people to Christ. Well, you might be, but I don't think that that's the overall focus and scan and approach that God gives in his word. Now the law is God's schoolmaster to lead people to faith in Christ. But I don't think there's a magic little formula in a series of questions that you ask and to try to quote unquote convict people. Only the spirit of God can convict people. And what you discover is the more you share Christ very often when in most evangelism is not mass evangelism. It's one-on-one or one-on-two or things surface and the spirit of God allows those things to surface. And you discover that the person has an alcohol problem. You discover that the person is a thief or whatever. And you have an opportunity as a Christian to address that directly. And we live in a day more and more where people are denying things to be wrong. So, you know, we've got this whole new bludgeoning uh, set of churches that have started in California Uh, in Colorado, some in the last month, and they're marijuana churches. And on the front, they have a a sign with a a picture of a cannabis plant, and they call smoking dope their sacrament, and they're getting a 501c3 nonprofit status so that the, the head dope smoker can, you know, lead the church and claim a parsonage allowance. And, and, you know, and that's just, you know, it's just disgusting where people call right, wrong and wrong, right. And that's the day that we live in. And so this caller from Manchester, you know, uh, that they're listening to search the scriptures up there and they've got, you know, gay people come to the church and uh, they didn't specify whether or not this person, these persons were actual members, but no one seems to say anything. Well, you know, you have to say something. So here's the thing is when the church is gathered, if a pastor is just preaching the word, he's going to be preaching the law and the spirit of God will bring conviction. He has a way of doing it. And you don't even necessarily have to be, be preaching about a particular subject and the spirit of God will still convict. I think the key is that uh, a person, a man, a woman, as they go about living their life, one, that they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and two, that they are using the Word of God to share the gospel. And as they do that, the Word of God is alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces the heart, and God brings people to himself. We just started a course last Wednesday. It's called Witnessing Without Fear. So it will be back online tomorrow night. And if you can't come, you can live stream us. So it would be ideal for people to be there in person as the course progresses, because you'll have some one-on-one opportunity to learn how to share the gospel. And so if you're listening to me and you've never led anyone to Christ or haven't led anyone to Christ in the last few years, you should come. Maybe the methodology you're using isn't good, but step back again for just a moment and don't ever forget this that in the first century, they didn't really have any evangelistic tracts to pass out. They didn't have a booklet like, would you like to know God as your friend or five steps to peace with God or the four spiritual laws. But what did the people do? They, they went about sharing the gospel. Um, Listen, if you know how to be saved, which you have to know in order to be saved, then you can tell the story. And as you do it, God will bring up issues and you can tell them the truth. 
about what God says and the change of life that he can bring. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, don't forget we aired these on the um, website, wagp.net, and searchthescriptures.org after they have... uh, you know, been live, so you can go and listen to a question back in as many weeks as you want. Deborah from Guyton, Georgia, has not heard of backsliding much lately. Could you help her understand what this word means according to the Bible? Well, I suppose it's a term that we we don't hear as much anymore. Uh, there was a time when Christians spoke a lot about backsliding Christians. Uh, number one, it's not a word that's found in the New Testament, and it is found in the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah uses it to describe the disobedience of the people of Israel. Hosea uses it to describe disobedience of the people that he preached to. But let me first say that what do we mean by backsliding? Backsliding is typically a term that is used to describe in our day a Christian. Obviously, in the Old Testament, they weren't Christians. The the, the term hadn't even been invented yet. In Antioch, they were first called Christians, Paul tells, or Luke records for us in uh, Acts chapter 11. But it described a believer, in that case, an Old Testament saint, who had wandered uh, wandered away from the things of God. Uh, So under the New Covenant, we would say, well, it would be a Christian who has wandered away, who's not living for the Lord, as we would say. So let me first set some framework. First of all, if someone is a real Christian, if they are genuinely saved, then they are secure. No amount of backsliding can cause them to lose their salvation. Uh, The Bible teaches the eternal security of the believer. Uh, My sheep, Jesus said, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. Eternal life is not something you earn. It's something that God gives you. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So one, let's affirm what the Bible plainly says, that the genuine believer is eternally secure, that they can do absolutely nothing to lose their salvation. Now, some people would say, well, you know, if if that's the case, I guess I'd get saved and and I would just live however I wanted to since I'm eternally secure. And when people raise that objection, I tell them, well, you know, that's what I do. I uh, I get I got saved and now I live however I want to. But I have a new want to on the inside and the new want to says I want to follow Christ. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Does that mean that a Christian can't sin? No, we all stumble in many ways. The one who says he does not sin is a liar and the truth is not in us. So one, we're secure. Secondly, understand that there can be moments of backsliding, so to speak. Even at the arrest of Christ, all the sheep scattered. And Jesus um, reminded them of that reality. And it was in one sense a fulfillment of what the prophet had written. They did indeed scatter. Uh, does that mean in that moment had one of those guys had a heart attack or been shot? Well, not shot, but had a spear put through him. Uh, would he have gone to hell? No. Um, they were saved individuals. Uh, but usually we use the term backsliding to describe a more progressive, ongoing uh, kind of rebellion towards God. And it's used that way in Jeremiah chapter 
three. It's used that way in Jeremiah chapter five in the book of Hosea, uh, where God describes their waywardness. And again, sometimes it's a matter of translation. Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your backsliding. Some translations say, or I will heal your waywardness, or I will heal your faithfulness. So God is always ready and wanting and willing to receive the backslidden, faithless Christian and to restore fellowship with them. Again, Jeremiah will later say um, the same truth in the eighth chapter. With that said, there is a New Testament form of backsliding, so to speak, and the book of Hebrews describes it. Uh, He deals there with Christians who should have been progressing and growing, but they were backsliding, so to speak. He said, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you should have matured enough where you could, as a Christian, answer basic questions. Um, The fact is, is you need someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You've come to need milk. In other words, you've backslid, you've regressed. You're not really ready for, you know, more deep truth, solid food, meat. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. So these were people who were growing, but they kind of regress. We could call that backsliding. Um, the fact is, is that any sin breaks fellowship with God. And if a Christian is genuinely uh, the Lord's and God knows those who are his and they backslide, they willfully break fellowship with God. There is a difference between them and an unbeliever. An unbeliever can live in sin and it doesn't really bother him all that much. And his conscience can get so callous that they become evangelists for sin. That's what the book of Romans chapter one in that third digression of God letting that nation go their own way. He describes people who, who affirm what we're doing is wrong, but nonetheless, they give hearty approval to those who do it with them. And that's the way it usually is with sin. A man goes out and he gets drunk and he feels pretty bad about it. And he knows he shouldn't have done that, but he does it again and again. And before you know it, he wants people to join him in his sin. And that's true with just about any kind of sin you can think of. But when a believer falls into sin, there is a hurt in the heart because the spirit of God is grieved within their spirit. Uh, God's spirit lives in us. When you touch your hand to a hot burner, you pull it away because the nerve endings in your hand immediately send a signal to the brain that you don't need to be touching this. Well, when the spirit lives in your spirit and you sin, there is a grief that you sense. There's a conviction that's on an entirely different level than the conviction an unbeliever might know. So there's that side of it. And so some of the most unhappy people are Christians who are in sin. Now, that's not to say that sin can't be pleasurable. Moses says it can for a season, as the writer to the Hebrews quotes him, but only for a short time. Eventually, it brings its pain. And so people say, you know, Christians say there's no fun in sin. There is fun in sin. Uh, But with that fun comes consequences. God's the designer and God in his wisdom knows that when we go against his ways, that we're going to suffer the consequences of it. And then something else that's also different for the believer who backslides or breaks fellowship with the Lord is they meet God in discipline. 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. I'm reading from Hebrews 12, verse 5, and he is quoting the book of Proverbs. Nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? There's an assumption, at least in the first century, that the dads were involved in their families and, and that they were involved in the disciplinary process. Now, today, you know, I know there is certainly child abuse, and I'm not speaking to that, but there is discipline, and it's corporal, and God's word is very clear as to how it should be done. But if you're without discipline, then he says, you're illegitimate children. You're not really born again. So if you as a Christian can live in sin with no consequence to your soul or discipline from God Almighty, and he's very creative, it comes in many ways. It might be your health. It might be uh, your finances. It can be any number of things that God brings into your life. First Corinthians eleven thirty highlights an example of this. Uh, look out, you know, you're, you're going to experience, God's going to take you to the woodshed. And if you're without discipline, it just means you've never been born again. I don't discipline, never did the next door neighbor's children. I only disciplined my own and our heavenly father is no different at all. So I know that's kind of a long answer to your backsliding question, but today we, we don't use the word that much but we still hopefully teach the concept that anyone can break fellowship with God, any believer, not our relationship. That's eternal. That's secure about our intimacy with God, not our communion, but or not our union, but our communion with God can be broken and it's broken when we sin. But God promises that when we come back, he'll restore us. He'll heal us. That doesn't mean we won't suffer with the consequences of our folly. We might, if I go out and get drunk and I kill someone, behind the wheel of a car, God can forgive me, uh, but I have to live with a consequence the rest of my life. All right. Very good. I apologize. I dropped somebody that was a live caller. Hopefully they'll call back in the next couple of seconds. In the meantime, if you uh, want to listen again to today's Bible line, you can do so at wagp.net and search the scriptures.org and just go to our archives for the Bible line. So uh, let me ask you something, Pastor. Have you ever heard of uh, Wittensville, Massachusetts? I sure have. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, just a little bit south of uh, where you were born and raised. And uh, I was looking on the map. There's a place there called Purgatory Chasm State Reservation. Ever hear of that? I went there one time. It's a set of caves that you crawl through. And we were there, and my brother got stuck in one of the caves. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, purgatory chasm, as they called it. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, he was going into this one cavern, and it was too small, and he just, he, half his body was hanging out, and half was hanging in. Not good. And no, it wasn't good. And uh, it took some pulling and some tugging and a few cuts on my brother, Kevin, and we got him out. But uh, yeah, I remember Purgatory Chasm very well. Uh, so well, we've, yeah. we've got a listener up there, and they've got a question. And uh, let's see if we can get to it now. Um, his name is uh, Placido, and uh, he wants to know, um, well, we're going to go to him in just a second, but that live caller is back. I thank you for trying again. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Rick. How are you doing there, Pastor? Doing well. Thank you. Hey, I've got a question. Um, in First Samuel 28, starting around verse 7, 
Saul goes to seize the witch of Endor, and she has him bring up Samuel. It says Samuel was brought up. And then after the conversation Saul and Samuel has, Samuel says, soon you and your sons, or tomorrow you and your sons will be down here with me. Where is he taken? Is that Sheol, righteous Sheol? And I'm, a, I'm guessing that Saul was saved since he's coming down with Samuel? Yes, so it's a great question. And so there's two compartments to Sheol. There's righteous Sheol and unrighteous Sheol. Righteous Sheol was emptied out at the ascension of Christ into heaven. And so today, to be absent from the body is to be immediately present with the Lord in the Father's house. That was not true on the other side of the cross. Uh, Generally, people went to Sheol, also called Abraham's bosom. Unrighteous Sheol, the word Sheol is a Hebrew word that comes into Greek as Hades. And so a rich man died and he went to Hades, which is still different from another word, Gehenna, which is usually translated hell. People today are not in hell who are unbelievers. They are in Hades. But Hades someday will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the final resting place of all unbelievers. So there's um, a debate in some people's mind whether or not Saul was a believer. I think you're going to meet Saul in heaven. I think you will meet him. And I think when Samuel was describing the fact that you'll be with me, uh, it was not simply, well, you're going to be in the grave. You're going to be dead. I think he meant literally you're going to be with me. And of course, what he prophesied came true. Uh, Saul ended up being killed along with his sons and they hung his wall, their bodies there on the wall. And uh, it was kind of a gruesome scene. But I think Saul was a believer. And I, I think, was he a good believer? No. Um, but he was nonetheless a believer. He was an old covenant believer. Uh, David was a believer too, much different kind of king. But David had his faults as well. David, under the new covenant, wouldn't be considered a Christian, would he? I mean, could you have four wives and be considered a believer today at this time in the history of God's people? Of course not. You would be considered an unbeliever. But David had four wives. Um, but we're going to meet David in heaven. He's a man after God's own heart. So under the old covenant, due to the hardness of man's heart, due to a different kind of relationship with the spirit of God, uh, the believers sometimes did things that would just virtually be unspeakable in the day that we live in. So uh, Saul went, I think, to be with Samuel and someday you'll meet by God's grace and mercy. Saul, along with Samuel, in the Father's house, in the New Jerusalem, which in and of itself will then leave heaven and rest on a brand new earth that God is yet to create. Anyway, we're out of time. It's a great question. Several questions we didn't get to, but Lord willing, there'll be another Tuesday and another Bible line. But we're so pleased you could be with us. If you have questions, you can go to searchthescriptures.org. There's a drop-down menu, ask Dr. Brogy a question, and You can send them there or to TBL, the Bible line at WAGP.net.